This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Happy resurrection morning, everybody. And what a weekend it was for the followers of Jesus. They had gone to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, but it seemed like the bottom had fallen out of their lives. All their hopes, all their dreams had vanished on Friday when Jesus died on the cross. They were in a state of shock and fear. They were downhearted by their circumstances, which is a reminder to us that sometimes life is painful. Life is hard. And in that state of mind, we often miss the truth that Jesus walks with us through the journey of life. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back now to Luke 24 and consider the background of our story. Luke 24, please find your sermon notes in your bulletin or open them up on your app. That would be a great help. The account of these two disciples on the road to Emmaus is one of my favorite stories in all of God's Word. It was Easter Sunday, and Jesus had just risen, but for the disciples there was no joy. Prior to his arrest and death, Jesus had traveled up and down the land once ruled by King David and Solomon, inviting people to become part of his kingdom promising them an abundant life. His followers fully expected he would become their king and that Israel would be prosperous and free again. But on one fateful Friday afternoon, the Son of God hung cold and lifeless on a Roman cross just outside the city gates. Everything had happened so fast. Early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb that held the body of Jesus. There they were met by two angels who said this to them. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. They remembered Jesus' words and told all of these things to the apostles, but they didn't believe them. In fact, many of Jesus' followers were struggling just to put it all together. Two of them decided to leave Jerusalem and head home. Let's pick up the story as Dr. Luke describes this discouraged pair of disciples. That begins at verse 13. And if you haven't already, I'd invite you to find a Bible and open it up to Luke 24, verse 13. There's a Bible right in front of you on the chair rack, and it's page 885 in that Bible. Luke 24, 13. These two were disciples of Jesus, but not part of the original 12. Late that morning, or maybe early in the afternoon, disillusioned and sad, they left Jerusalem. For these two, hope had been buried in the tomb provided by Joseph of Arimathea. And so the dejected pair began to walk home, even as rumors of the resurrection circulated among the other disciples. We pick it up at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Emmaus was a small village about seven miles directly west of Jerusalem, and the exact location of this village is not certain today. There are several, about three different possible locations that are suggested. We don't know for sure which of them was the Emmaus referred to here. 
What is known is the road that they took to get there. We can go to that very road today. And here's a picture of what this scene might have looked like. This is from the movie, The Road to Emmaus. And it's accurate in terms of the hilliness of, of this part of Israel. Here's a photo of the actual remains of the Roman road that they would have walked on. And I show you this to remind you that this is a real place. And this was an actual historical event that we're reading about here. This is the eyewitness account of two disciples who encountered Jesus that afternoon on this road. Verse 15 continues. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. It was customary for travelers headed in the same direction to join together to pass the time talking as they walked along. Thus the two probably thought very little of the fact that this third man had joined them. Luke describes the disciples' conversation as a bantering of ideas back and forth with strong emotion. One of the emotions that was most prominent, it sounds like, was disappointment and discouragement. I don't know how you would describe your own life today. Maybe your life is going well. Maybe you are full of faith. If everything is going well for you, you have a lot to thank God for. But for others, it might be a different story. For some, you may be dealing with disappointments, not unlike these two on the road to Emmaus. Beloved, this life is a journey. And at times, it can be a hard one. Life gets messy here. I wonder how often, though, Jesus has drawn alongside us in our grief, our questions, and our confusion, and we didn't even recognize him. If you find yourself in that place today, stay tuned, because we're going to see how Jesus meets us on the journey and gives us hope. So Jesus graciously walked with them, probably for a couple of hours, joining into their conversation, that animated discussion that they were having. I want you to notice how Jesus responds with a question, a revealing question. And I think the best teachers in the world guide students to discover truth, to discover it for themselves rather than just sort of plopping it in their laps. The idea has been around since ancient times. In fact, it's the basis for an entire manner of teaching called the Socratic Method. And the thought behind the Socratic method is that when you discover something for yourself, you'll never forget it. It has much more impact. And so as we read the exchange between Jesus and these disciples on the road, we see Jesus doesn't just walk up to them and announce who he is. He conceals his identity and he gives them time to discover for themselves. Verse 17 says, he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. As I picture it, they came to an abrupt stop and looked at him in disbelief. This whole scene, by the way, is one of the more comedic parts of God's word. Look for these subtle touches of humor in the rest of this conversation. Luke also employs a clever narrative device called literary irony. It's where the reader, where we're aware of important facts that are hidden from the characters that we're reading about. 
And so we continue in verse 18. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. The longer Cleopas talked, the more he indicted himself and his friend for their unbelief. Think about it. What more evidence could they have asked for? Witnesses had seen the empty tomb. Angels had announced that Jesus was alive. And witnesses had seen him alive and heard him speak. So the proof was there. The real problem was not a lack of evidence, but it was their hearts. See, the basic issue was they did not believe all that the prophets had written about the Messiah. As they read the Old Testament, they saw the glory of the coming king, but they missed the suffering side of his first coming. What they believed was good, but it didn't go far enough. And so Jesus opened the scriptures and taught them. And what he taught them was a prophetic Bible study, a prophecy Bible conference, so to speak, and how I wish I could have been there. Imagine the greatest teacher explaining the greatest themes from the greatest book of all times. Can you just picture them walking along for a couple of hours as Jesus explained to them all that the scripture said? Jesus began with a rebuke, by the way, and then he asked a question, and then he offers his explanation. We pick it up in verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Perhaps Jesus started in Genesis 22, which tells of Abraham placing his beloved son Isaac on the altar. Surely he touched on Passover, the blood of lamb shed for sins, the tabernacle ceremonies, the day of atonement, and much, much more. What Jesus is constantly doing is opening their minds to scriptures over and over and over again. Because the cross paired with the resurrection helps us understand that all scripture is about Jesus. Surely Jesus camped out in Isaiah 53 in the prophetic significance of the suffering servant of God. Listen to these two verses, which we looked at in depth on Friday night. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was oppressed and afflicted, 
Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Just one of hundreds of Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, about his birth and his life, about his death and his resurrection. Listen, these prophecies paired with the cross and the resurrection makes all of Scripture make sense. When you realize that all the plot lines of Scripture converge in Jesus Christ, how could you not recognize that he is the ultimate, unexpected Savior? The illustration that comes to my mind is any movie with an unexpected plot twist at the end. You probably have your own favorite movie with a surprise ending. Mine would have to be The Empire Strikes Back. And if you've ever seen The Empire Strikes Back, I'm sure you remember that surprise ending. Well, the first time you see it, you get to the ending and you're just absolutely shocked to find out the big surprise. But after you know the ending, you can't possibly watch it again and see those earlier parts of the movie without thinking about the end, right? I don't want to spoil it for you, but Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father, okay? <laughs> hey, if you haven't seen it yet, you probably aren't going to. It's been out for 39 years. <laughs> don't miss my point, all right? Once you know the ending, you can't not view every scene in light of the ending. It's impossible. And you can't not look at so much of the Bible and say, wait a minute, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that. Jesus is the ultimate example of this. Even if the human author wasn't trying to relay a messianic prophecy, you can't help see Jesus in the earlier passages. The resurrection and the cross, when paired together, open up the whole Bible for us. And by the way, it also points us to the importance of the prophetic portions of Scripture that predict a second, his second coming. Well, that brings us to the climax of our story, which is this dinner, this fascinating dinner that begins at verse 28. See, in keeping with ancient Near Eastern customs of hospitality, the two followers invited the stranger to the stranger to stay the night. Verse 28 continues. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Jesus accepts their offer and yet maintained his cover to complete the lesson he had begun to teach them. Verse 30 says, When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. By the way, the breaking of the bread here likely refers to an ordinary meal, not to the Lord's Supper. And then Luke concludes the story with this bit of irony. They'd been staring into the very face of the risen Jesus, and that they were prevented from seeing him until they buried their faulty expectations. The, Luke, the word that Luke used for their eyes were open, verse 31, means they were fully opened. It means they came to fully comprehend him. This is much more than just recognizing his features. 
They came to recognize Jesus in all his significance as the Messiah, the Son of God, and their risen Lord and King. And then he vanishes from their sight. Ironically, once their eyes were open and they recognized him, they couldn't see him anymore, at least physically. Well, here's how our text concludes. This is verse 32. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As Luke relates the story, these disciples walking the road to Emmaus, we can't help identify them or with them in some ways, and particularly in their pain and their fear. We too are pilgrims on this journey through life. We too despair of life circumstances from time to time. We too lose heart when our hopes come to a tragic end. But remember this. Every trial is an opportunity to discover what God wants us to see. Their resurrected hope carried them back to Jerusalem to bear the good news to others. That's the end of our story here, but not the end of what God has for us here. Because like in the case of Cleopas and his companion, we need to allow God to open our eyes as well. And thus we consider some lessons for today. While opening our eyes is something that he must do for us, there are a few things that we can do to make that process less difficult. Four things I want to suggest for you this morning. Number one is this. We need to accept God's word as true. We need to accept God's word as true. When Jesus asked the disciples, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? He pointed to the reason for their unbelief. He made it clear that that they knew the contents of Scripture. They'd heard it read. They knew what it said, but they didn't fully accept its message as true. And listen, sometimes we do the very same thing. We encounter pain in our journey of life. We have questions and doubts that arise. We confuse our own expectations with God's ultimate plans. We need to go back to God's word and accept it as true. Lesson number two is this. We need to trust God's timing. Trust God's timing. Chuck Swindoll wrote it like this. He said, God in his perfect discernment did not allow the two disciples to recognize Jesus until the time was right. He didn't allow them to suffer in grief a moment longer than was absolutely necessary. Yet he didn't end their discomfort too soon. And beloved, the same is true today. Spiritual maturity requires a journey. It doesn't occur instantaneously. We need to submit to God's will and to God's timing because he is faithful and we can trust him. Here's lesson number three. We need to seek God's perspective. God's perspective. Many made the mistake of thinking that the Messiah would would merely recapture the glory days of King David. 
In other words, they hoped that Jesus would bring Israel the same power and prosperity that she once enjoyed. But that wasn't the plan, at least not in his first coming. We need to make sure that we see God's perspective today as well. How easy it is for us to be limited by our own human view of things. Our own expectations, which often cloud what God really wants to do. By the way, Easter gives us so much hope. And we need that resurrection hope to speak into every area of our lives. I had a part this past week in two different memorial services. Two people who passed away recently and were remembered here by their families and loved ones. And this brought to my mind my own mother's passing just six months ago now. In all three of those cases, it's the truth of the resurrection that provides hope that provides perspective. How thankful I am for the resurrection and how it impacts our view of everything. Lesson number four is we need to see Jesus as the true king. We need to see him as the true king. Jesus referred to himself as the king in our passage, but it's easy for us to miss. You say, well, where, where did he do that? Did you notice that he called himself the Messiah? Instead of referring to himself as I, he refers to himself as the Christ, which of course is the Messiah, which is the king. In verse 26, he said, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He's saying, listen, I'm the Messiah. I'm your sovereign. I'm the true king. Jesus fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, such as this one in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Listen to this promise that God gave to King David. He said, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You know, as Americans, we know very little about kingdoms and living under a king, though much of the world is familiar with that. British author C.S. Lewis wrote an article years ago called Equality, in which he said this. He said, I'm absolutely in favor of democracy because I believe in the fall of man. Because we are all sinners, we need checks and balances. Ultimate reality, though, is not democracy, because you were made to be ruled. And if you don't acknowledge Jesus as king, you will serve somebody. You will bow your knee to somebody, although you might not even admit that that's what you're doing. Listen, you need a king. You will serve somebody. Beloved, Jesus is the king. Surrender to him. Obey him. That is to say, treat him as a king. Do whatever he says, whether you like it or not. Trust him and accept whatever he sends into your life, whether you understand it or not. Live your life for him. But don't forget... Jesus is also coming again to establish his kingdom on the earth. And we will reign with him.
Remember in the Lord's Prayer these words, Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come is how he taught us to pray. Do you mean that when you pray that? Just as people missed Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, and many missed his death and resurrection in Jerusalem, many will also miss his coming kingdom. Here we are in the presence of royalty, in the presence of the king. Jesus is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and every knee shall bow before him. Are you ready for his second coming? Are you watching for his soon return? Well, let's talk about making some decisions this morning based on our story. I don't know exactly what the Spirit of God may be saying to you today, but here are some possible applications that come to my mind. Three next steps on your notes there. Number one is I will seek God's perspective. The Lord gave these two disciples joy and purpose where all there had been was discouragement and fear. And it came from two things, basically. And these two things are still basic to our relationship with Jesus today. First, recognizing who he is. And second, understanding what his plans are for our world. And by the way, the word of God is instrumental to both. The only completely reliable source of truth is the 66 books of the Bible. They're like a map to show us our way, to keep us from getting lost on the journey. Friend, Jesus wants to walk beside you and strengthen you and give you his hope for the future. But you have to choose to seek him. Next step, too, is I will connect with others on my spiritual journey. I will connect with others on this journey. Again, this life is a journey, and it can be a very hard journey at times. Thankfully, God doesn't want us to travel the road alone. He wants to walk with us. But know this, too. There is a group of fellow travelers here at Lake City who also want to journey along with you. Inside your bulletin today, as Debbie mentioned a few minutes ago, is that Get Connected insert. You might look at that again, pull it out if you want. There are many great opportunities to get connected and to grow in our faith journey here at Lake City. She mentioned just a couple of them, the movie and the Alpha course, but there are many there. Another great way to connect is to come back for our sermon series next weekend and to learn more about this kingdom of God that he's going to establish on the earth. We're studying the book of Daniel and starting into chapter 7 next week. And one of the big themes in the second half of Daniel is the kingdom that Jesus is coming to set up soon. And by the way, there is no future like the one that our king is preparing for us. No other religion on the planet offers the kind of future that Jesus does. It's a personal relationship with our sovereign king. And it's unimaginably wonderful. Please come back and learn more about the great things the Lord has planned for us in his kingdom. Next step three is I will invite Jesus in. As I close, I'm going to give you an opportunity today to pray and invite Jesus into your life. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus said this, 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. In other words, Jesus wants a relationship with you. He doesn't want you just to know about him. He wants you to fully know him, to have a friendship with him. And he has done his part to make that possible. Now it's up to you to say yes. It's up to you to open the door and invite him in. Jesus made the way for you and I to be forgiven and to be part of his eternal kingdom. And if you're ready to invite Jesus into your life today, I'd invite you to pray with me in just a few minutes as I close. Ask him to forgive you by faith. And then finally, please circle one of these four letters, the A, B, C, or D, on your sermon notes there at the very bottom. I'm going to ask everyone to take your communication card as well at this time, because on Easter, I like to just kind of do this informal survey to just kind of assess where we all are, but also to help us kind of process and think about where we all are. So on the bottom of your sermon notes, if you'd circle one of these four letters, and on the front upper right corner of your communication card, I'm going to ask you to write the same letter. So let me explain those letters for you. But first, you should know that no one is going to call you. No one's going to show up at your door. Nothing like that, okay? But here's the four letters and what they stand for. The A stands for, I have already received Christ. If that's you, just put an A on your card and circle the A on your notes. The B means I'm believing today. In other words, I haven't done this before, but today I'm putting my faith in Jesus. The C means I'm considering it. I'm, I'm thinking about it. By the way, we'd love to help you answer any questions that you have if you're considering it. And then the D means I don't think I ever will believe. Just not being disrespectful, I just can't see myself going there. That's the D. So just circle one of those on your notes and Transfer that letter to your communication card, please. And by the way, if you've already received Christ and his forgiveness, you don't need to do that over and over again. But perhaps you do need to get connected with his family and take that next step in your spiritual journey. And if that's the case, we would love, we'd absolutely love for you to come back and connect with the King's family here at Lake City. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your great, great love for us. And we thank you that in your sovereignty, you sent Jesus, your son, your own beloved son, to die in our place and to take our sin upon himself. We will never get over your amazing grace and your love for us. And today, we especially are celebrating the fact that Jesus not only died, but he rose again. He's alive. And because he rose from the dead, we have the assurance you accepted his sacrifice, that we can be forgiven and made right. We thank you for that. We thank you for desiring a relationship with us. Please open our eyes to know you fully. With this in mind, friend, I just would offer this invitation prayer and invite you to pray along with me if this is your heart. Just silently pray and say, Father, Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to die in my place. I admit that it was my sin that helped nail Jesus to the cross. But in faith today, I invite him in. I receive your forgiveness. And I trust in Jesus alone to forgive me. 
Help me to grow and understand more about what it means to follow him. Perhaps some of you are here today and you've made that decision, but you haven't really stayed close. You're not walking uh, intimately with him today. And if that's the case, you want to draw closer to him, I'd invite you to pray something like this, just silently again in your heart. Just say, Father, I've trusted Jesus, but I'm not really walking with him. He's not really the king of my life. He's not the master and the Lord. And so I surrender afresh my life, my dreams, my hopes, my will to him. Help me to grow in my friendship with Jesus as I walk this journey of life. Father, we thank you for all of these things. We pray them all in the strong name of Jesus Christ. And everybody agreed and said, amen. Amen.